0: I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And as you turn there, you might be wondering why Ezra Nehemiah has seven more chapters after the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. I mean, you know, the job's done. What else is there to be said? Well, we need to realize that the goal of building the wall wasn't simply to protect the people. Ezra and Nehemiah were actually concerned to build or restore two walls. The first wall, Nehemiah's physical wall, was meant to protect Jerusalem. Ezra was also building a wall. Or maybe rebuilding the wall. It is the law of God. And that wall was meant to establish the identity of the people of God. You see, more than the temple or the wall, the people needed to be rebuilt. Vindicating God's honor meant that they needed to become a holy people living in a holy city. Or to put it another way, the people of God needed to fulfill God's original intent in forming them. If you go back all the way to Exodus chapter 19, we realize that God had redeemed the people of Israel so that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's why Ezra chapter 7 reproduces a list from Ezra chapter 2 verse 1 to 70. We won't go through that. We've already touched on that previously. It's not that they needed filler for the book. The writer, in reproducing this original list of exiles who returned, is pointing us to God's continuing purposes for his people. We now come at this stage in, Ezra, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're now a hundred years distant from the original return to exile. And the fact that Nehemiah 7 reproduces that list says that God isn't finished with his people. He isn't giving up on them. He is still continuing to work in and through them. And this is where our situation actually is analogous. You realize that Crestwick is going to be 100 years old in 2028. So we're 95 years old this year. And not only are we 95 years old this year, not many of you are 95 years old, I understand. (laughs) And I will not dare to say some of you look 95. (laughs) More like 40, 40 times over. (laughs) But we're also starting afresh after the upheaval of the last three years. And we are rebuilding so that Crestwick might be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse to the lost. And so, to that end, I'd like us to read Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 to 18 as it talks about how Ezra and Nehemiah continued the work of rebuilding the people. Ezra, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 18. Israel had settled in their towns. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion Beside him on his right stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah, And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabithai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests of the Levi- and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written, So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last. Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So you realize that rebuilding the people began by submitting to God's word. Nehemiah 7 to Nehemiah 12 focuses on three events where God's word was being proclaimed. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 8, chapter 8, 13 to 18, and then chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, are all preaching events. And the writer wants to emphasize to us that Scripture must define our identity, shape our daily experience, and guide our future as a people set apart for God. And wonderfully, the people understood that. Because we find in verse 1 and 2 that they themselves asked that the word of God be read aloud to them. And so Ezra and 13 Levites along with him read the law. Made it clear and gave the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. See, they... They read the law, they translated it into language the people could understand. Perhaps because many of the people during that time spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew. And then the Levites explained the significance of the law for the present time. So that the people could truly understand what God was saying to them. And brothers and sisters, this is what needs to happen every time we gather to hear God's word. We need to understand what God is saying to us so that we could respond properly. We do not and should not come to Scripture for what we can get out of it, as if we were in control. If we are to be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse to the lost, then we need to listen carefully and humbly to what God is saying to us. We must submit to the Spirit who is speaking to us through His Word. And we do not have the luxury of deciding what we will receive. You know, I like the first part. I don't like the second part, so we'll forget about the second and we'll move on to the third. Yeah, I like that better. No. And you see, that's the philosophy that guides the way I preach. My responsibility is to bring you before God's word to communicate to you the intent of the author, not the doctrine that I see in the text. It is And must be centered on the intent of the author. And then the response that God wants from us in our day. And so as the people listened, the text tells us that something strange began to happen. In verse 9, as they began to understand God's word and what it was saying to them, everybody began to cry. And it's not because the sermon was six hours long. I mean, I would be crying if it were six hours long. (laughs) Give me a break. They'd been there from early morning till midday. But what happened was that as God's word was being proclaimed, God's spirit wielded scripture like a scalpel to lay bare their souls. The people began to be convicted of their sin as they understood God's Word properly. See, if the Bible agrees with your opinions and your thinking all the time, you probably aren't reading it properly. The mirror of Scripture confronts us with our sin and corrects our opinions. That's probably why we would rather read God's Word for what we can get out of it instead of hearing what God has to say to us. Or maybe that's why some people don't read it at all. But let's understand this. Renewal needs God's word, but repentance in light of God's word is critical to renewal. Before God rebuilds us, he needs to clear away the broken and decaying rubble in our lives. And part of that means we need to be confronted with the horror of our sin and sinfulness through his word. But then we come to another surprising thing. Instead of going with the flow and making the people feel worse, and maybe having an altar call afterwards, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites actually tell them to stop crying. They encourage them to rejoice. Notice verse verse 9. They said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Stop. And you might wonder, isn't that a good thing? That they they mourn over their sin? Well, yes, it's a good thing to be confronted with our sin. But we need to recognize that contrition for sin has to take place against the backdrop of God's gracious character and covenant faithfulness. I once heard a church planter in Nova Scotia talk about how he was so overwhelmed by the weight of his sin, he just gave up all hope. See, that's what happens when you face the reality of your sin without looking to Jesus. Think of Peter and Judas. Both Peter and Judas betrayed Jesus, didn't they? But Judas killed himself because he could only see his sin. Peter, because Jesus prayed for him, was enabled to see his sin in light of Jesus' promise that he would be restored so that he could acknowledge the gravity of his sin and in the same breath look beyond his sin to the grace of God offered to him in Jesus Christ. And that's why Ezra and Hemiah and the Levites stopped them from grieving The people of God needed to see God's faithful covenant love in order to deal with their sin properly. And so we are told, chapter 8, verse 14 to 17, that they celebrated the Feast of Booths according to God's instructions. They took branches and had a camp out. Now, I'll be honest, I don't like camping. But they had great joy as they were camping. And it's not because they enjoyed not having showers or anything like that. The feast of booths, their time camping outdoors, reminded them that their existence was absolutely dependent on God, who is absolutely faithful. Having to live in temporary shelters for a week reminded them how they wandered in the wilderness. Not them themselves, but how their ancestors wandered in the wilderness. And the contrast between the wandering in the wilderness and their status, their possessing homes in the promised land, showed them how faithful God was in the face of their continuing need. And that's why their celebration of the Feast of Booths, by the book, resulted in great joy. They experienced afresh God's continuing love for them, and His joy would give them strength for what lay ahead. So Dean Ulrich points out, biblical joy begins with remembering and celebrating God's goodness to undeserving people, what is often called grace. Grace. God's word, whether the five books of Moses or any other portion of the Jewish and Christian Bibles, emphasizes what he has done and what he will yet do to have a people for his name. God must take the initiative to save his people and conform them to his likeness. They are not able to do this for themselves. Even so, God does not give up on those whom he chooses to love. They may disappoint him. They may struggle to be who they already are as God's people, but God perseveres with them, doing whatever is necessary to keep sanctifying them. This divine faithfulness that the Bible triumphs, trumpets is the source of joy. Joy, then, involves gratitude and confidence that jointly compel, strengthen God's people to persist in the mission He has given them. And so now that they had rejoiced in the faithfulness of God during the Feast of Booths, they were ready to confess their sins as part of the renewal of the community. And you come to chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. See, renewal takes place. As guided by Scripture, we repent of our sins and rest in the unfailing grace of God. And you see that rest in God's grace in their prayer of confession. In chapter 9, beginning with verse 5. They begin by recognizing the greatness of God. Verse 5 and verse 6. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh, the Lord You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. They begin with the Genesis account recognizing the infinite majesty and greatness of God. Then they acknowledge the grace of God in choosing Abram, delivering Israel from Egypt and giving them his good commands. Verse 7 up to verse 15. They are rehearsing the history of the world and the history of Israel and God's dealings with His people. And then they move on, having praised God for His goodness and greatness, His grace in choosing them. From verse 16 onwards, they acknowledge their arrogant rebellion and God's gracious forgiveness. Look at verse 16. Well, let me start in verse 15. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. Imagine the goodness of God. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. In the face of God's goodness, look at verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, And they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. And that theme goes on. From verse 16 all the way to verse 33. Over and over they arrogantly rebel and God graciously forgives. And they rehearse their wicked rebellion against God's good rule. And God's unfailing compassion towards them. So that in verse 17 they recognize God's unfailing covenant commitment. Then you jump down to verse 31. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And this is the wonder of God's character. This God whom we worship, this God who has brought us together today, is absolutely, utterly holy. He will not tolerate sin. But he also will not give up on his sinful people. He refuses to abandon them. Nehemiah wanted the people to know that God's joy is our security. In one sense, the joy of the Lord is our strength. As we delight in the Lord, we are strengthened to serve. But there's another sense. In which we need to understand the joy of the Lord is our strength. James Hamilton translates strength in verse 10 as stronghold. The joy of the Lord is our stronghold. So that he would say their stronghold is God's joy in saving, restoring, and protecting them. Yahweh's joy is what protects them. Yahweh's joy is their stronghold. And you know... We, in our day, understand that Yahweh's joy is so great that Jesus, Yahweh himself in the flesh, endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. Indeed, the joy of the Lord is our stronghold because Jesus suffered for the joy of saving a people for his own possession. And that's why we're here. And that's what reassures us in times of sorrow and difficulty. Yahweh's joy that redeemed us for himself holds us fast. And that's the reason why we follow him. We're not earning his favor. We are receiving his favor that grips us and refuses to let go of us. That's why biblically driven worship is so critical. Biblical worship presents God in all his beauty, majesty, and grace so that his mercy draws us to him as we see ourselves rightly in our sinfulness. And so as the people acknowledged the immeasurable grace that God had shown throughout the years, they responded in verse 38. In covenant renewal. Verse 38. In view of all this. What's all this? God's greatness displayed in creation. God's compassion, grace, covenant commitment displayed in redeeming a people for himself despite them. In view of all this. We are making a binding agreement. Putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Their prayer demonstrates that renewal happens as we are gripped by the grace of God shown to unworthy people like you and me. And it is a grace we understand as God's word, first of all, exposes our sin And drives us to God's gracious provision in Christ for our sin and sinfulness. And so, chapter 10, you see the list of people who put their names to that covenant. Then they make their commitments in verse 30 onwards. Well, verse 29 onwards. As part of renewing the covenant, they vow to obey God's law. By being committed to purity in their relationships. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, but to take their daughters for our sons. They vowed to submit their business practices and their use of time to the authority of God. Verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring men- merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And then they vowed to make God and his worship their priority, verse 32 to 39. They promised that they would support the temple worship financially. In short, they were committing themselves to having God's word and standards shape every area of their lives because God has been merciful and gracious to them. And it's so important that they made specific commitments. Because as Raymond Brown points out, the devil is not worried by our pious aspirations. You know, those vague longings of, I need to change. The devil is troubled when, in obedience to God for the glory of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, we make firm, practical decisions to do specific things for the Lord. And here's where I struggle, because I can only give general application and perhaps Talk about how the church can put Scripture into practice. Maybe I can give a personal example that would point you to how you could respond. But I have to be frank, I I don't know your individual situation well enough. So here's the deal. You are responsible to figure out your specific response to God's Word prayerfully and in community. That's why we have small groups. And that's why we need godly friends who could speak into our lives. My job as your pastor is to train your desires, to orient your desires to what God loves so that you develop discernment and wisdom to choose what is best for His glory, for His honor. Now, some of you might wonder why they were so committed to Sabbath-keeping. Well, understand that Sabbath-keeping was the sign of of the Old Covenant relationship with God. In our day, we look to Christ as the fulfillment of all the Sabbath symbolized. That's why we're gathered together today for worship. We are celebrating our rest in Christ. It's our way of fulfilling God's intent for giving Israel the Sabbath. So it's not just stop working. Take a day off. There's more to it. Dean Ulrich would point out Sabbath days. and, And this, I'm sharing this with you because it strikes me personally. Sabbath days, especially on the first day of the year, taught Israel that there is more to life than work. Imagine that. There's more to life than work. Wow. The beginning of a new year often makes people pause and number their days. A new year can be a source of anxiety. Right? How many of you felt anxious, especially on, what was it, January 21, Blue Monday, whatever that was, when all the bills from Christmas came in? (laughs) A new year can be a source of anxiety as people consider their limits because you're another year older, another year closer to death, and realize that time is slipping away. Sabbaths inform people that they are not defined by their work or achievements. Imagine that. Rather than focus on keeping ahead of the competition or realize self-promoting goals, a person can find contentment in doing work for God's pleasure. With that contentment comes assurance that God will redeem the labor of one's hands for eternity. See, that's what Sabbath is all about. And that's why they were committed to Sabbath. And that's why you know, Sabbath keeping needs to be a practice for us. It's about acknowledging God's reign and rule over our lives. And here's the great thing about the people. They didn't just make practical promises. They actually acted on their covenant commitment in chapter 11 by designating people to live in Jerusalem. See, if Jerusalem was to be a holy city, it needed to have people. But a lot of people were more comfortable living in the suburbs, if you will. And so, Nehemiah 11.4 to 12.26 honors the people who made the sacrifice to move out of their suburban comfort into the city of Jerusalem to make Jerusalem a holy city demonstrating the goodness and greatness of Yahweh. So that Jerusalem, in the way it was arranged socially, politically, economically, would be a beacon of light to the nations. And after that, we are told in chapter 12 that they dedicated the newly completed walls by worshiping the Lord. If you're wondering why I'm taking such a large chunk, it's because they all fit together into the goal of rebuilding and renewing community. Their celebration of the newly completed walls was the culmination of their covenant renewal. Now, Thomas Armstrong, our resident stonework expert, estimates that the completed wall might have been about 10 feet high and 5 feet wide. So imagine maybe the top of that cross, the second cross, the second highest cross, and imagine it being five feet wide, about my height. Lay me down there. <laughs> so if that was that, those were the dimensions, it would have been c- capable of bearing 21,600 pounds per linear foot. It's hard to imagine. so imagine 200, 108 people weighing 200 pounds each as an inverted pyramid on a 12-inch section. Do we have that picture? Yes? <laughs> All right, there's only 11 there. Multiply that by 10. Imagine that pyramid extending outward. That's the amount of weight one square foot, or one linear foot, was supposed to be able to bear. Why do I make a point of that? Well, remember that in chapter 4, Tobiah the Ammonite said, huh, A fox climbing on the walls would break it down. So the Israelites decided to show how many foxes they could put on the wall. They decided to show the stability of the wall by having not foxes, but choirs. Two large choirs march on the walls. They were not just rubbing Tobias mockery in his face. They were celebrating God's faithfulness And empowering. Remember, everyone acknowledged that this work was completed in fifty-two days because God had helped them finish the work. And their joy and delight in God, who enabled them to build the wall, resulted in mission. Look at chapter twelve, verse 43. We are told. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. So this is a community rejoicing in God. Look at the last phrase. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. The people's praise resounded in the ears of the nations around them. And it was a challenge and invitation to them. They celebrated the God who had enabled them to build the walls. And it was inviting the people. Will you not put your faith in this great and glorious God? And this is what it means to be a lighthouse for the lost. We praise our God before the people around us. With the intent, the desire, the passion to see them join us. In glorifying our God. And we have even more reason to respond to God's grace. With joy and delight than these restored exiles. See like them we have been ungrateful rebels haven't we? But Jesus. The son of God. Became man so that he may die and rise again. For our our sake. So that through faith in him we might be forgiven of our sins and be made children of God. And as His children, we have the privilege of becoming members of the new covenant, which promises the forgiveness of sins and changed hearts. So that unlike the old covenant, the new covenant will never be broken. And it will never be broken because Jesus our Savior and our covenant head has already kept it for us. We are united with Jesus through faith so that his righteousness stands as our righteousness. And by the way, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be able to celebrate that joy of union with Christ because we're going to be baptizing Sebastian. If you're wondering who Sebastian is, he's... One of the kids, he's Lalo and Sarah's son. He's Dennis and Mary's grandson. We're going to be baptizing him on February 26. And if you want to be baptized, if you're a believer and you have not been baptized yet, then come see me. Join us for the Q&A. And we'll talk about what it means to be baptized. But you see, that's what, that's, that's our celebration, that's our joy, that's our delight. That we are united with the King of kings and Lord of lords. His righteousness is our righteousness. This is grace beyond our wildest imagination. And it is this grace that reassures us in every situation in life. At one point in my life, I was going through a very dark time. I didn't know what the future held. And I didn't know if I could get out of the hospital. I was worried for Joel, worried for the kids. This verse came to me. Romans chapter 8. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. It is that joy of God in giving His Son that gave me confidence to face the future. But it is also that joy of God that moves us to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of King Jesus in every area of life. And it begins with you putting your trust In Christ. And in Christ alone for your salvation. And for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, our surrendering of ourselves continues. Not by willing ourselves to follow Jesus. But by growing in our delight in Christ so that the duty of obedience now becomes a delight because we recognize that Christ lavishes his unfailing love on us day after day after day despite us so that we could live for him by his grace. And that's how we are renewed individually and as a community. And that's how we as Crestwick Baptist Church become a lighthouse for the lost. As our joy and delight in this magnificent God who has been faithful beyond our wildest dreams fills us with delight so that we cannot help but tell others about this magnificent God and our desire is the desire of the psalmist. May all the peoples praise him. I pray that this would be our prayer, that all the nations would be glad and rejoice in our great king. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a wonderful God, wonderful in your character. In your greatness, in your majesty, wonderful, in your condescension, in that you choose to love sinners like us. People who have taken your good gifts and used them for our own purposes and who have spitefully, rebelliously rejected your rule. And yet you refuse to give up on us. Though rightly you, would have con- you could have condemned us. Yet in love you sent your son. So that he may bring us to yourself. Not by subduing us with force of arms or crushing our wills. But by him laying down his life for us. And you, by your Spirit, graciously, lovingly, open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus displayed on the cross. So that we would put our faith in him. Oh Lord, what a, what a wonderful gift. Well, we must confess that we often take it for granted. It is, it is so familiar to us that we lose the wonder. Father, we pray, help us by your Spirit to recognize the reality of your grace as we see the greatness of our sin and recognize that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound so that we would rejoice in you that all the world may know that you are the great and glorious God who deserves our praise and their praise. And we look forward to that great day when all men and women, when everything in heaven and on earth and even under the earth will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for, being, for making us a part of your purposes to bring that about. Help us to be faithful. Help us to delight in you so that your praise may ring out from our church. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.